Well, you can stand and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. And we do have some 50 verses to cover this morning, but I will just read the first 10 to get us started as we look at Paul's ministry in Ephesus. So here now, as God speaks through his holy, inspired, inerrant, and life-giving word, Acts 18, verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. A century he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, "If I will return if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through the grace had believed." For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you as our great King and Lord, and we ask of you that Christ would become our prophet this morning, that he would speak to us clearly, or that he would penetrate our hearts with his word. Lord, may we look to him and live, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. In 1858, the Scottish missionary John Payton arrived on the island of Tanna, which is located in the South Pacific Seas, um, in the New Hebrides region, and he was there to preach the gospel to cannibals on this South Pacific island. Uh, After several years of trying to reach them, he realized that it wasn't going to work any longer, and so he up and left. He was actually kicked out in some ways. He was rushed out by these cannibals who wanted his life. And so he went back and did some mission mobilization in various countries for four years, and then he was sent back to a neighboring island, the island called Anawa. And here, John Patton ministered for 15 years. And over this 15-year ministry, he saw God do amazing things. He saw an island turn to Jesus Christ. Those who were violent gave up their violent ways and turned to the gospel of peace. Those who were entrenched into idolatry and heathenism renounced their ways. And so John Patton was able to say later in his autobiography, I claimed Anawa for Jesus Christ, and by the grace of God, Anawa now worships at the Savior's feet. A remarkable 
thing for God to do through this man. And we can find in our text a similar thing happening with the Apostle Paul. Paul could rightly say that I claimed Ephesus for Jesus Christ. And by the grace of God, Ephesus now worships at the Savior's feet. And thus far in the narrative of Acts, we have seen the times of growth. We have seen the word increase and multiply as those who are convicted by the gospel of Jesus Christ come under its saving power. And then we usually find some kind of opposition that follows it. And we find that very same pattern in our text here in Acts chapter 19 this morning. Yet it's in this passage that we see an explosion of reach by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we can come to this passage and find great encouragement in it. For God was at work in those days and he is at work in our time. You see, the gospel made quite a noise in Ephesus. It was in this city that Paul's peak ministry years took place. It was in this region that Paul sent some of his finest theological and pastoral letters in the book of Ephesians and his letters to Timothy, his protege. We find even here in Ephesus seven churches that Jesus himself spoke to in the book of Revelation, Ephesus being the first one. And so St. Ignatius would come some century later and say that the church in Ephesus was the world's most renowned church. And this was no doubt the work of Paul, but of course it was the work of the Holy Spirit, converting, convincing sinners. And so we need to examine that this morning. We need to find the joy of a revival in our own hearts because it's this gospel success stories that can stir us up, whether or not it's a personal friend that we've seen come to Christ or whether or not it's a reformation or revival that we've read of in past ages. These kind of moments of the Spirit's outpouring can encourage us. It can reinvigorate our faith and our confidence in the Word of God. So that's what we want to look at this morning as we simply look at two things from this passage. First, we want to look at the ministry of the Word, and then secondly, the effects of the Word. So if you just glance at Acts 18, 18 through verse 23, we find a transition section here that Luke is recording. It's the conclusion of Paul's second missionary journey and then the introduction to his third missionary journey. And you can jump down to verse 22, where it says that he landed at Caesarea. He went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. As you remember that Antioch is the sending church for Paul's missionary journeys. He returns to Antioch to just be sent out again for his third and final missionary journey. And we find him doing what Paul so often did. He is there, verse 23, spending some time there. He departed and went from one place to the next, to the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And so Paul has not given up his work yet. He is continuing to evangelize and to build up the churches that he has planted with the help of God's Spirit. And so we come to this transition section and we see that the word is now going to be preached in Ephesus. And while the primary focus of Luke's account here in Acts 18 and 19 is what Paul did in Ephesus, we find that he actually starts with 
this man named Apollos. If you look at verse 24, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. And as Luke points out, he gives a positive commendation of this man named Apollos. He's an eloquent preacher. He's a powerful preacher. He knew the scriptures well. He was able to refute the Jews publicly and and proclaim to people everywhere that Jesus really is the Christ. He's an evangelist. He's an apologist. He's a preacher. And we get this positive mark of this man. Yet he does have one issue that we find here in verse 25. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus though he knew only the baptism of John. So here's a man competent in the scriptures, knows a lot about how God has revealed himself in the Old Testament, and yet he doesn't have his baptismal theology quite right. And so Priscilla and Aquila come along to get him straightened out. They come along to correct his theology, and that's what we see in verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And we mustn't miss the significance of what Priscilla and Aquila are doing here. They are correcting Apollos' theology. Theology does matter, but you see the manner in which they do it. They take him aside. They don't seek to tear down this charismatic preacher. They want to build him up. They don't want to make a big deal out of it, but they want to simply instruct him. Here is a better way. You can know more about the truths that God has revealed in Scripture, uh, but you must understand this right. And I think this is a remarkable display of humility. On both ends, there's humility in Priscilla and Aquila to, to silently, quietly take him you know, behind the building and tell him, hey, you don't really quite have this baptism thing right. But there's also remarkable humility in Apollos, who hears this correction. He's a great preacher. He's competent in the scriptures. He could have just blown them off. But he hears it, and clearly he's commended and sent off to Achaia. And I wonder, do we exemplify this sort of humility when correction occurs in our own lives? And do we hear a rebuke from a brother or sister in Christ and actually amend our ways? Are we always closed off to it, thinking that we can never be criticized? And I also wonder if we show this kind of humility when we do need to correct someone, or do we just lash out in public and make an embarrassing scene out of it? Well, here we find Apollos, Priscilla, and Aquila exemplifying, being that perfect example of humility when it comes to the Word of God. And so we see this example of correction, but it's not the only example of correction early on in Ephesus. We actually get another account of correction. This time, it's with Paul and the 12 disciples of John. Uh, One of the most bizarre accounts to come out of World War II was a story of Hiru Anoda, who was a Japanese soldier who was instructed to fight guerrilla warfare in the Philippine Islands. And he actually kept up his battle of guerrilla warfare until 1974. And it's a quite an amazing account of how Jap- Japan tried to send all of these leaflets down to let him know the war is over. And they were even shouting, you know, uh, via megaphone into the jungle saying, 
the war is over. And yet he didn't believe anyone. He had to have his commanding officer come in person to tell him that the war really was over. We find a similar account of a man living, or 12 men really, living in past ages. You find these disciples of John who don't even know what the Holy Spirit is. Some 20 years after Pentecost. Look at verse 1 and 2 of Acts 19, and it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And so they have not even heard of the fact that Jesus Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father and has poured out his Holy Spirit on all who trust in him. They hadn't even heard of it. And so it's something much more than just mere correction here that is needed. But it's actually conversion that's needed. Because we know that you cannot be born again without the help of the Holy Spirit. Without the Spirit giving you new life. And so these disciples need the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that promises the Spirit. Which is exactly what Paul does in verse Three and following, and he said, Into then what were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men and all. And so here you have the first converts, at least recorded converts, of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. They have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, 12 disciples of John. And here are the men that Paul is going to build his entire ministry in Ephesus. I think the reason why Luke is recording these two examples of wonky theology in in Ephesus, it's just to show where these early church planners and workers of the gospel started. It wasn't a land full of biblical truth. It wasn't a land that even really was all that connected to Judaism. It was a land of paganism. And the converts, the Jewish converts that you did have there, didn't even understand really the truth about Jesus Christ. And so Luke is saying, look at where they began. And you will see where they ended up and how remarkable it truly is. And so Paul takes these 12 disciples along with him and takes them into the synagogue, as was Paul's pattern of ministry. He would show up and go to the synagogue and preach to the Jews. And this is what we see here in verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And yet we find that just as Paul so often finds, this ministry is not received with faith and repentance, but rather hard hearts. Verse 9, But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jew and Greeks. And so Paul doesn't waste his time with those who will not hear the word of Christ. 
Rather, he wants to spend his time building on those who have trusted and placed their faith in Jesus Christ and have the Spirit at work in them. And so Paul takes these disciples out of the synagogue and goes to this hall of the tyrant, is really what that means. And he teaches them there. And you might notice a a little footnote in your text where it says that um, in some manuscripts add that he taught from the 11th hour of the morning to 4 o'clock p.m., so five hours. And I hope you catch the significance of really what's going on here. It says that Paul did this for two years. So kids, you can do the math if this is correct, if the, if the manuscripts have it right that Paul was in the hall of Tyrannus for five hours a day for two years. That equals out to be about 3,650 teaching hours. That's a lot. And Paul would teach during the, the hot part of the day, and in the morning, he would build his tents and, and work to provide for himself. And, and yet he is giving his life to teaching. 3,650 teaching hours of the Word of God for two years. He probably taught more in a month than most seminary professors teach in an entire year. That's how significant Paul's ministry was in Ephesus. I think it's important to pause here to see how great of a thing Paul was doing here in Ephesus. Because if you think about it, how is the church to grow? How is the church going to experience reformation, revival, whatever word you want to put on it? Well, it's through the ministry of the word. 3,650 teaching hours. Sometimes we look back to the reformation and we forget how it was that people actually changed. How you could have a completely Catholic Europe that gets changed almost overnight. Well, it's through the teaching and preaching of the word. You look back to Calvin's Geneva. He preached twice every Sunday. He would often preach five days a week on alternating weeks. That's a lot of teaching hours. If you look at the Scottish Reformation, it was the same. You'd have pastors that would preach twice on Sundays, and then they would often preach four times during the week. It wouldn't be uncommon that you would have a minister who was teaching or catechizing, doing something every single day of the week. Because the truth is, it's only the word of the Lord that changes people, that can create new life. You can turn to church manuals today, church growth books, and usually you'll find that they'll say that the problem, the reason why the church isn't growing is because our sermons are too long. 15 15 minutes is too long. You'll lose people. Well, Paul didn't seem to buy into that. Five hours a day was what it took to bring reform to Ephesus. And you see what happened. Look at what it says again in verse 10. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jew and Greeks. Paul's ministry was so unrelenting that everyone in that whole Asia or that whole area in ancient Asia, modern-day Turkey, heard the word of the Lord. They knew of the name of Jesus Christ because he was teaching, he was preaching day in and day out. That's how transformation 
Reformation, revival takes place. And so we have here a ministry of the word in Ephesus. But then we want to look also at the effects of this ministry. Many of you know that a team of us went down to Uganda a few weeks ago. And while I was there, I had the opportunity to go to uh, the equator. And I saw all these kids gathered around what looked like two large bowls. And they were watching something, and I was curious to see what they were doing. And so I kind of snuck up there to see what was going on. And they were watching water go down this bowl. And they had a bowl north of the equator line and a bowl south of the equator line. And this teacher was talking about the Coriolis effect, how um, the way that water moves, how uh, mass moves north of the equator is different than what happens south of the equator. So if you look at storms, they will turn in opposite directions depending on what side of the equator you're on. And I'm no scientific expert, but I believe that's what I heard when I was there. But the truth of the matter and the reason why I tell you this is because the word always has an effect, a Coriolis effect, depending on where you're located spiritually. It will have some kind of impact on you. Whether you're stuck in your sins, whether you are broken by your sins, whether you believe in Jesus Christ, whether you don't believe in Jesus Christ, the word of God always has an effect. And that's what we see arise out of Paul's ministry. This great ministry of two years teaching and preaching every day for five hours, the seminary of sorts that takes place in Ephesus, it has a great effect. And we'll see that it has no little disturbance in that area. So we want to merely examine some of these effects that come out of Paul's ministry of the word. First, we see the effect of jealousy. Look at verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name Jesus, who Paul proclaims. And this is quite remarkable, really. These Jewish exorcists have no business of actually repenting of their sins and turning to Jesus Christ, but they see that that Jesus name really works. It's like the business practice of saying, well, if people are buying what my competitor sells, I'll just sell what they're selling. And that's what these exorcists do. They want the power, they want the glory, yet they don't want the substance. And so they're going about proclaiming Jesus, who Paul Paul proclaims. But we see that it doesn't work out so well for them. As you just keep reading, verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. You see, the Lord will not let his name be tarnished like this. The Lord will vindicate his name. And you see that these men, these exorcists, they just wanted the power and the glory, but they didn't want Jesus himself. And so what happens? Well, they're humiliated 
They go running off naked in shame because they do not really belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this effect of the word trying to counterfeit, trying to look like the power of godliness without having the substance of it, it doesn't get them very far, does it? Oh, we see jealousy. But this whole event actually has this ripple effect. It's this little spark that creates this massive fire throughout Ephesus and Asia. And we see even the effect of repentance in people's lives. Look at verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And what a wonderful picture this is. Repentance. You have people realizing that they had been relying on this fake spirituality, this pagan religion of thinking that they could somehow manipulate the divine. And then they see the name, the powerful one who does have all authority and dominion over the spiritual realm. And they say, I can't have these books any longer. Throw them in the fire. No more shall I see them. That's what repentance looks like. It's burning your sin. It's putting an end to it. It's mortifying it. And that's what the effect of the word has in people's lives. This is nothing short of a revival here in Ephesus and Asia. You have the altering of an economy. 50,000 pieces of silver. I have no clue how much that is worth. But it sounds like a lot. It was enough, obviously, to create a disturbance in the whole region. But when revival takes place, when the Spirit is active in convincing and converting sinners to turn away from their idolatry and turn to the one true everlasting God, we see things change. Sin begins to look like sin, heinous. Righteousness isn't just an option anymore, but it actually becomes something desirable by all people. People are being stirred up. People are being awakened to their sleepy and drowsy lives. And so that's what we are seeing here in Ephesus. A revival taking place, an economy changing. And so we see the work and the effect of repentance. And then finally, we just want to notice that we see the effect of opposition. That whenever the word goes out, Satan is sure to try to put an end to it. There's nothing more he loathes than a ministry that declares the whole counsel of God, as Paul was doing here in Ephesus. And so he raises up a couple businessmen to see if they can put an end to this ministry. Look at verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. 
And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Can you believe that? Gods that you make with your own hands are not really true gods. Well, that's what Demetrius and his friends are saying. Keep reading verse 27. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. You know from history books that the temple made to Artemis in Ephesus was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And here you have Demetrius and these businessmen realizing that if Paul has his way, there will be no more idolatry in this land. And so they become concerned, they become worried, and they try to incite a riot saying, he's not only going to bring an end to our business, but our entire culture is going to evaporate before our very eyes unless we put an end to the word of the Lord because it's too powerful for us. And so here they are trying to create all this rage and confusion. As you see in verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so Satan is trying to his best to throw his fiery darts back at the church, back at the word of the Lord, trying to squash it out before it goes too far. But we find here this chaotic riot, this Rage comes down to a whisper as the town clerk rises up and quiets them. And we see simply towards the end of this chapter in verse 41, nothing really happens here. Satan tries to create all this rage. Demetrius thinks that he can create this riot and get Paul out of here and then his work would be done. Yet that's not the case. Yes, Paul leaves. He never comes back but Timothy ministers in this area. You see churches begin to grow. You see the gospel not only being proclaimed in Asia, but missionaries going out from Asia to the rest of the world. All because of a simple ministry of the word. And as we begin to close, just want to highlight two important things we can learn from this passage. First, we must learn to let the word do the work. Let the word do the work. Perhaps you are familiar with Martin Luther's summary of the Reformation, where he said, after it all, I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my Philip of Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or an emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. And that's what we see here in Acts chapter 9, 19. The word does it all. It's no wonder why Luke says that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily in verse 20. It's the word that's increasing. The word has the power to really change people's lives, to get them out of their rut in idolatry and professing the one true religion of praise to Jesus Christ and giving him glory. Friends, 
This book that you have in front of you, that you're reading, it has power when the Spirit is at work through it. We don't need anything other than this word and God working through it. It has the ability to topple nations, to bring an economy down, because God is more powerful than all of the wicked men that think they rule this world. And so even though we might find opposition along the way, we find the word will prevail. Nothing can turn it down. And so we must let the word do the work, but we also must be responsive to the word ourselves. I hope you notice all of these different responses to the word in this passage. You have those who are stubborn and hard-hearted in the synagogue that won't listen to Paul's preaching of Jesus Christ. You have those who are jealous that want merely the, the power, but not the substance. And you have those who just want to shut it up, that just want to put an end to the word. And there might be some of you in here today that hear sermon after sermon, day after day, week after week, and the word is being preached to you, and yet you do not respond to it. That the word goes out, and yet your heart is not affected by it. Your will is not bent by it. Well, today the Lord is coming to you and giving you a clear warning. Do not refuse the one who is speaking. God says to you that he has the words of eternal life and you must respond in humility. Because that's what this passage also shows. That we find not only opposition and rejection of the word, but we also find a humble reception of the word. You can think back to Apollos who heard that word of correction. You can think about these 12 disciples that were eager to listen to Paul declare the fullness of Jesus Christ for them. You can think about those who were caught up in idolatry. They were eager to then burn their books in repentance. This is how we must respond to the word. We must let it dwell richly in us, as Paul says. Because it's in this word that is contained the words of eternal life. And it's only by those words of eternal life that we come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father, we do know that our hearts are hard, our ears are dull, Lord, and our minds are inattentive. So, Lord, we do pray that you would give us hearts of repentance. May we mold or be molded by the image of Jesus Christ. May we be broken by your word. And we pray that you would build us up in our most full, holy faith, that we may give glory and praise to Jesus Christ and him alone. His name we pray. Amen.